Welcome to episode number 27 of the Mental Health Marriage. This is a podcast for the spouses and partners of those who are mentally ill. I'm your host, and for the sake of my husband's anonymity, you can call me M. As the spouse of a man with bipolar 2, I will share my story, my struggles, and my insights with you, and also share conversations with people like you whose stories need to be heard. I hope to build a community where we can all laugh and cry together at the paradox and irony that mental illness can be and help each other keep it together and thrive despite the major setbacks. I believe we create our futures and that we can make better lives for ourselves and our families. Well, thank you to those of you who attended the first virtual conference with Mental Health Strong back in October of 2021. It was a very moving event to be a part of and we are going to be hosting more of them. The next one is gonna be May 1st, or sorry, May 21st, 2022. It's in the morning on a Saturday. You can already order your early bird tickets for only $20 at mentalhealthstrong.com. The topics are going to include parenting solutions. That's the panel that I'm going to be on. Uh, Sex and intimacy solutions, which was requested from the feedback of the people who attended the first conference. We're going to have licensed sex, sex therapists on there. This is definitely something that needs to be talked about and that people feel deep pain in their relationships. I can totally relate to that. That's what brought me and my husband into therapy originally. So that's going to be really exciting. And also just daily resilience solutions. You can learn more again at mentalhealthstrong.com. And as part of the Mental Health Strong Leadership Summit, which I'm also a part of, I had the privilege of meeting today's guest. Her name's Kimberly Simpkins, and she's been married to her husband, Scott, who has bipolar type 1, for over 20 years. They have a teenage daughter, Jasmine, who we get to talk to in part 2 of this episode, which is a really great perspective that we've never had on this show before, so I'm extra excited about that. Kimberly just wants to help other others navigate the difficult challenges that come in these types of marriages and to give everyone hope and tools. Uh, she's got a blog, the SimpkinsFamilyChronicles.com, which I will link in the show notes. And her story is definitely long and complex. And so she's also planning on releasing her own podcast that's going to have a lot more details than we're going to have on this show. But also look forward to this being two or three part. So I know I haven't released a lot of episodes lately. My life is neck deep in parenting young children which is my priority and definitely trying to also be a support to my husband who's still like he's stable working but he still has bipolar type 2 he's on medication but he he never feels great he doesn't sleep well it's yeah it's challenging he's amazing though and we overall do very well but anyway i i'm excited that I am part of a broader community now of people with the same goal that I have is to support each other and to help others know that they're not alone. That's definitely going to influence the future of this podcast and possible future sister podcasts, which I will talk about later. But your help with this podcast at Patreon means so much to me. If you'd like to become a patron, it's mental health marriage slash patreon.com. I think I'll, I'll link it to the show notes again. 
And as always, you can always email me at mentalhealthmarriage.com. I love hearing from you. Or sorry, it's mentalhealthmarriage at gmail.com. Boy, scatterbrained. So that's enough of me. Uh, Here is the first part of my interview with Kimberly. All right, Kimberly, thanks for joining me today. I haven't done an episode in a long time, so you're helping me get going again. Let's just start by giving the listeners a background about how you and your husband got together in the first place. My husband and I met in a musical missions group that was based out in California. So kind of a long story, but when I was in college, I found out that there was this music group that used music as a tool to go around the world and share the gospel. And I thought, oh, this is right up my alley because I wanted to do something like that. So I joined the group and I was with them for four years and then we needed a drummer one summer. (laughs) So you're a violinist, right? Yes, I play the violin, yes. And so we needed a drummer and in walked Scott Simpkins from Tennessee, there he was. So he came to be our drummer in the summer of 1998 which was a very long time ago. Now it seems like it's... So we traveled together that summer. Our team went um, all over the United States and then we went overseas to the country of Turkey. Yeah, so that that was my first introduction with Scott. We were, you know, from the beginning, we just struck up an easy friendship. He was a little different, you know, because he seemed like he hadn't maybe been out of Tennessee much, you know, which okay. it turned out that he, I guess he kind of hadn't. <laughs> a little bit but he had never been overseas so you know the whole thing with going to turkey and everything was was very overwhelming (laughs) for him but he did great i mean now you know in hindsight looking back knowing all of the things that he's had to deal with i think he did an incredible job so my husband's never gone overseas and like i want him to but i also know it's going to be super hard for him yeah i can relate to that (laughs) So, so yeah. And then, um, well, that summer he was just Scott, but then in the fall tour, that was where things kind of got interesting where we kind of really noticed each other. But what's funny is that with this group, they have a rule that you're not allowed to date your teammate on the road. So it makes everyone want to date each other more. Exactly. And (laughs) I know so many couples that are still together today and they met in that very group. So anyway, that fall, we started to kind of get a little closer, but I wasn't sure. And I was just like, well, this is weird because he just wasn't what I thought that I would end up with (laughs) when I got married. And funny thing is that the bipolar disorder wasn't even, I wasn't, that wasn't one of your reasons. No. And, you know, I, I learned early on that he had bipolar disorder because he was uh, like the beginning of that summer tour, he was rifling through his bag and he had all these pill bottles and, and I just was kind of teasing him. And I said, Oh, you got fight the pharmacy there. And he's like, well, I take medicine because I have bipolar disorder. And I had heard of bipolar disorder because one of our teammates who had left, I traveled with him for four years and he had bipolar disorder. And Hmm. actually he and Scott were on the same medications. And so I was like, oh, well, you're just like so-and-so, you know, well, he had to drink a lot of water. So you make sure you drink a lot of water because he was like, lithium lithium doesn't destroy your kidneys. (laughs) Yes. lithium. And I was like, you know, we'll, we'll let you eat first if you need to eat, because as a team, you know, we all knew each other's 
things. Oh, we had some diabetics. We had some, so we all learned how to give shots and emergency Coke. We oh. had a bipolar disorder. And so we were just very open, you know, because we it was were probably like, oh, kind of normalized for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a family. So my understanding of bipolar disorder based on the experience I had with that particular teammate was it, he was moody, this person. So, okay. you know, he was either really, really up or really, really down. And sometimes he was in between and he was cool, but he would always say, guys, I'm not doing so good today. You know, I just want to. So, and then other days he was just like, woo, you know, but never anything extreme. You know, it was part of his testimony. Um, we, when we would travel to these different places, sometimes we would share our testimony. And so he was very open about, you know, what, what he was dealing with and everything. So, I mean, it just wasn't even, I was like, oh, okay, you take medicine. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't know. So yeah. anyway, so yeah, so that fall we got closer. And then in the spring, the next year, our team ended up going on a three-month outreach to Africa and Lebanon. At first, Scott wasn't going to come, but through a whole series of events, including, um, you know, the one reason that he didn't want to come was because we were going to be gone for three months and it would have been difficult for him to get his medications because he only got them 30 days. Yeah, yep. So he was like, well, God, if you really want me to go, then you'll just give me my medicine. Well, a miracle happened. He got a 90 day supply of medication. And so he didn't have any excuse for not going with us to Africa. Right. So, so he went and that was where the magic happened. <laughs> It was that tour where, you know, we had already kind of established a friendship. I knew that he kind of liked me and I really liked him too. I just thought he was sweet. And there was just something about him that was just very endearing to me, you know, because he was just a sweet person. I mean, he was a little weird. And I, I say, I think he was a kind of an enigma to some of my other teammates, but I mean, I, he didn't bother me. I guess I like weird people. So Anyway, so yeah, we, we just got along great and a lot of things that happened. So anyway, the way that we kind of really got together was that we wrote letters back and forth. So we couldn't really be alone together. <laughs> so we just kind of wrote letters back and forth. And then I had one of my girlfriends on the team, some, sometimes she would play third wheel. <laughs> and so she would kind of hang out with us so that we could have our couple time, but not look like a couple. You know what I mean? Yeah. So through all of that, we, you know, through prayer, because we're, you know, Christians and we wanted to do God's will. And it was just very clear that this, this is who I'm supposed to be with. And so we were in the country of Rwanda and wow. I don't know, we just kind of agreed, okay, we're going to get married. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> we were engaged, but we couldn't do anything about it because we were still yeah. on the road. So, so we got off the road and we decided to leave the organization. And I ended up moving to his home area in Tennessee. And the rest is history, I guess. So. Wow. Okay. So uh, it's a couple of interesting things is he was really open about his diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And you had had previous experience with the mutual friend. So mm -hmm. did you have any other knowledge or things that maybe would be helpful about your knowledge of mental illness before you ended up in a marriage? No, I didn't, didn't know anything. And we had gone to premarital counseling and it didn't even come up because my thing was, well, he's taking medicine and, you know, his family, I think was trying to maybe give me some hints. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, you know, I just kind of was like, I was just in love and I was naive and I just, well, we, you know, God brought us together so we can deal with anything, you know, we're going to, we're going to, it doesn't matter, you know, so that was kind of my attitude. <laughs> yeah, that optimism of newness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it didn't last very long, but anyway. <laughs> well, okay, so that's the next thing is how long before things started to break down? Well, so we got yeah, we got married. The first 18 months, everything was cool because that summer, you know, we were coming off the mission field and we had nothing, absolutely nothing. I didn't have any money. I, you know, this was the bulk of my early 20s. I was 27, 28, and I didn't have anything. And the money, well, I had a little bit of money, but he was living with his parents before he came on the road and he had a job, but he left it to come on the road. So we had nothing. Yeah. But then and we were like, how are we going to get married? And we don't even have anything. But we got married in September. And through that summer, all of a sudden, left and right, you know, he, he was in, uh, working at his job and somebody came through the line and they were working with a cellular phone company and they were like, oh, we're hiring, you know, and he's like, oh, so he went to the job fair and he got hired. So he got a better job. And then I ended up, long story short, uh, the city that we live in has a, a symphony orchestra. So I contacted them and got to sub a concert with them. They just called me right off my resume. And then I was told, oh, there's auditions coming up. So I auditioned and I won a spot. And then wow. they were like, oh, we're looking for teachers. You know, do you teach? And I'm like, well, sure. You know, so I got a job teaching private lessons with a school. And then we had an apartment and I had a car. I mean, everything just fell into place. Like by the time we got married, it was just all there. So wow. that was really cool. Probably so affirmation. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so those 18 months, the first 18 months, they were a little rocky, but I mean, that's normal, you know, because sure. newlyweds, you know, we're trying to figure things out and everything. But for the most part, it went really well, but he would struggle sometimes. He's not really a moody person, but I could tell, you know, when something was bothering him. And so I didn't really think about it. But okay, so these first 18 months, and really for a while there, I didn't know anything about medication. I didn't know anything about bipolar disorder. I didn't know anything about going to the doctor with him or advocating. But he was going and he was still taking was all going. his meds yeah. and stuff. And in fact, yeah. I was I was on the HIPAA list, you know, that they could contact me. So, I mean, it wasn't Good. like he was hiding anything, but, you know, I, I, I just didn't think about it. And then, so about 18 months into our marriage, he was working and he, I knew that he had gone to a an appointment with the doctor and he said that they had lowered one of his medications so this was around maybe march and then in may i kind of started to notice some changes he was just getting a little bit just kind of a little bit more on edge a little bit more agitated a little bit more his family were like you know i don't think he's on his medicine and i'm like oh that's not it you know it's just a spiritual attack you know that's what's going on sure. <laughs> And so anyway, he ended up having a full-blown manic episode. Unfortunately, it wasn't horrible, horrible. I mean, at the time it was because I had never seen anything like that before. Sure. But looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, that was kind of mild. But anyway, he, you know, was just very manic. He had gotten some grandiose ideas. He was talking rapidly and classic symptoms. And he was very agitated. Like he was never violent, but it was just like, it was like, okay, if I do the wrong thing, am I, is he going to snap, you know? But You're walking on eggshells. 
Yeah. And I, I did call at that point. I did call <laughs> the, the doctor and I said, okay, my husband's off his medicine. What do I do? And they're like, well, you know, he can just start back on, just start him back on it if he's willing to take the medicine. And I was like, well, can, can I put him in a hospital or something? And they were like, well, is he a threat to himself? And I said, no. Is he a threat to others? I said, no. Well, there's nothing we can do, which is a horrible position to be in. <laughs> Absolutely horrible. His family, they were like, well, we tried to tell you. <laughs> and so his really mother, right now. Yeah, his mother was like, now you're going to have to make sure he takes his medication and you're going to have to watch him swallow. And I'm like, oh, this man. is not what I signed up for. You know, he's a grown man. I'm not going to watch him swallow pills, you know. But anyway, he decided, you know, of his own free will, he went back on the medication because they can't be forced to do anything against their will. But he agreed uh, miraculously. Praise the Lord. He agreed. And he was still, it took him, you know, it takes several weeks for the medicine to take effect. So he ended up going to his parents' house while the medicine kicked in. <laughs> so that was probably that, nice. <laughs> yeah, that was good for me. That was good for me. So, you know, the whole time I'm still wrestling because we do come from a spiritual background. We've got the spiritual connection. I know that there's the mental, but there's also, you know, the spiritual and how much of this is mental and how much is spiritual. And, you know, what do I do? <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And, and I never really got the answers because by the time he got well, it was our second anniversary, which was September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. So, (laughs) yeah. And at that point he had gotten better and somewhere around that time though, that movie, A Beautiful Mind came out. Oh, that movie. I went to see it. And it was very triggering. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that was the first time that I had ever seen anything like that depicted. But at the very end, there's a scene when he's going up to accept his Nobel Prize and she's in the audience and he's like, now they, they, I found out later that that was actually kind of fiction. You know, they fictionalized some parts of the story, but anyway, the movie, it was still very touching because they stuck together and they look, he, he's successful. And I believe that that was going to be Scott. I had Mm -hmm. just that, that faith, that promise. I felt like God promised me that everything was going to work out. So, you know, I just hung in there and I felt like, you know what, I, this is, this is what God's called me to. And the enemy just doesn't like it. I'm just going to stay in it just because I know that the enemy doesn't like it. That was kind of my thinking. So that's that. And so he got back on his medicine, 2001, life gets kind of back to normal. He goes back to taking his medicine and I didn't really stand there and watch him swallow, but I did kind of like, well, did you take your medicine? Yes, I took it. That kind of thing. So everything was good for a while. We had our daughter in 2003. So that was wonderful. He was a good dad. He was working. I was working um, part-time in the symphony. And so he would have baby duty while I was at rehearsal and he took good care of our daughter. You know, he was very attentive to her and, and everything was good until she was about two years old and things shifted again. (laughs) Can you trace it? Can you trace the shift to anything like a life event or is it just more like the nature of the bipolar swing? 
You know, I, I just don't really know. Looking back, to be honest with you, I don't think that he was properly medicated when yeah. I look back on different things. And so maybe he had an episode and he started getting into his head again. Hey, I'm healed. I've been healed and, you know, I don't need this anymore. And, mm-hmm. and at least this time he told me the last time he didn't tell me that he had gone all this medicine. But this oh, time, I, I, just, I just believe that you just don't want to. I was like, well, okay, what can I do? You know what I mean? I can't do anything. Anyway, yeah. and I was like, well, I'm just going to take your word for it. And so some things happen and it's a lot of detail and 22 years of marriage is just a lot because there's a lot of layers and things that I haven't discussed publicly just yet. But long story short, Jasmine and I, my daughter, we went on a trip, we came home and he was full blown manic. I mean, he was just, but he was in distress. He wasn't just like, well, you know, he was in distress and when we got home, he told me that he had had some flashbacks to his childhood, oh. the things that had happened in his childhood. And he's just like, that, you know, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And the things he told me, I'm not going to share publicly yet, but it was pretty it was pretty serious. It was pretty, pretty serious. Awful. And I thought, well, no wonder. And it had to do with his family. Mm-hmm. And we had gone there at Thanksgiving. And, and I, I noticed that, that something had changed in him that Thanksgiving. And he would ask me questions like, what do you think my family thinks about me? And because he was the baby and he was kind of like the fourth wheel, you know, out of the four kids. He was the fourth wheel. And, and you know, he had this mental health issue. And so his position in the family, I guess, did seem kind of like he was neglected. And he did tell me that. So, you know, I didn't know what to think. So anyway, these flashbacks had to do with his family. And Mm -hmm. that was just very overwhelming. And at first, I wasn't sure if it was even true. (laughs) Because I'm like, I don't even know this is true. Is this true? Or is this, you know, the illness or what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's hard to know. Yeah, yeah. So if it was true, then we have a problem because that means that his family, there's something wrong with them. But if it's not true, then I, I still have a problem because that means that there's something wrong with him. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I was, side yeah. question, Does, is yeah. there any bipolar or mental illness in his family? Not diagnosed, but I think there might be some mental health issues undiagnosed because his family is, is very different. <laughs> They're okay. very different. So anyway, yeah, to put it nicely, they're very different. So they were nice to me. I mean, you know, I didn't have any problem with them, but, and I knew, okay, here's why I took them kind of seriously because Jasmine was two years old at the time. Now he had a sibling who, before we got married, this particular sibling had flashbacks also. And at the time it, there was a two-year-old niece that was involved. So this person was triggered. So mm-hmm. Scott was triggered by a two-year-old and I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know what to do with this. Anyway, what do you do with that? Well, you get him back on his medicine and he didn't want to have, yeah, he didn't want to have anything to do with his family after that. And it was rough. It was rough. So he got back on his medicine, but then he got back off again. And that was, ugh, we're up to 2006 now. So at that point he couldn't work anymore. You know, I was this, yeah, I had a toddler, (laughs) I had this apartment that how are we going to pay for this? And so I didn't know what to do. And I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do with him. I didn't know where things were going. You know, I didn't understand still what I was dealing with. I kind of 
you know, found out that he was on an antipsychotic. And I'm like, an antipsychotic? <laughs> you know, what's that? And I didn't Hearing realize. for a drug. <laughs> yeah, but come to find out, his version of bipolar disorder comes with psychosis because he has bipolar one. And yeah. I didn't even know that there were two different bipolar disorders. So, you know, I started reading we. about it. Yeah, I started reading about it and started learning it. Oh, I'm like, oh, great. Okay, great. He's got the severe one, you know? Awesome. <laughs> and so, yeah. And then I would talk to his doctors and I would say, are you sure he's got bipolar disorder? Are you sure that, you know, maybe he's not schizophrenic? And they're like, no, he's not schizophrenic. And I'm like, okay, just all kinds of you could go it through every little minute detail of things that happen yeah. but it's just so it can be so confusing it's almost like living in a dream you know yeah. when you're on someone that's not in their right mind and for them when they come out of it it's like a dream because they don't remember like my husband he didn't remember a lot of the things that he said and did but I was alert <laughs> through the whole thing yeah. and so I remember the things that he did, the way that he acted and all of that stuff. So he's just, you know, he's back on his medicine and life is good. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know. But what yeah, <laughs> like they need to go to the doctor and then you need the doctor after because you pretty much yes. have PTSD with everything. That you well, I didn't even about. know about that. So, so anyway, so in 2006, you know, he doesn't have a job. He, you know, I don't have any money. And so I called my mother and she said, come on home. So we how far away was home? It's about six and a half hours in North Carolina, where I'm from originally. And she's like, you know, you got a place here. So I mean, what can I do? Yeah. We just abandoned the apartment. It was terrible. We abandoned the apartment, left a note for the landlord, like, sorry, we had to leave. (laughs) Wow. You know, (laughs) I didn't have anything. I didn't have a way to pack up the furniture. I mean, I just had to leave it there. I just packed up the car and left. Yeah. And, and wow. he, and you know, he was with me at first. I was going to leave him because <laughs> I was thinking, I don't want to take him with me. But then I could hear that still small voice of the Holy Spirit and say, no, he's safe with you, you know, because at this time he was still upset with his family mm-hmm. and I didn't want to involve them because if he was upset with them, I didn't want it's them be to be worse if they're involved. Yeah. 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 So it oh, was so better. hard. Yeah, it was better for us to leave. So that summer, you know, we're at my mother's house. And again, we're starting from scratch. Yeah, I have nothing. I've got a two-year-old. But my mother, I'm telling you, the woman is a saint. She was an angel. She took us in. That summer, Scott had a really, really hard summer. I mean, it was very hard. And again, looking back, he wasn't properly medicated. I mean, we still, we got into the uh, behavioral health program in North Carolina. He got on medicine. He was seeing a psychiatrist. He was taking the medicine for a while, but he just really wasn't getting better. He just really never got right after that flashback. And I felt like what he was going through was connected to that. Mm -hmm. Even though it was manifesting through the mental illness, I, I knew that there was both going on we're living with my mom and she took us in and okay I was like well I guess I need a job well guess what I go to a job fair they they had a, an opening for an orchestra teacher and I interviewed with my ninth grade orchestra teacher no way. <laughs> and, <laughs> yep, 
she taught me in the ninth grade and she's like oh we're so glad you're here and I didn't even she didn't even say you're hired it was just like okay here's the paperwork so I got a job all of a sudden I'm a teacher and my degree is not in education so I was coming in with no experience but they have a program in North Carolina where you can get your license while you're teaching as you're teaching I I'm a teacher so yes how extremely difficult. <laughs> yeah, so I was on a provisional license, so I didn't know anything, and they put me in, well, actually, it's the school that I graduated from, but it changed a lot, and so it was kind of, it was rough. It was a culture shock for me. <laughs> you know, the, the kids, I mean, they were, they were mad because their orchestra teacher had left them after six years, and they were mad at him, and they took sure. it out on me. <laughs> That first year was kind of rough, but, you know, God was just there in the midst of it all. There's just so many stories that I have, you know, and I just have this, this bubbling, burning desire, you know, to share just all of the different amazing things that the Lord did in the midst, even though things were chaotic, he's still there, you know, he was still taking care of us. He was still taking care of Scott, you know, so I I got the job, found an apartment, bought a car, (laughs) all of that stuff. In October, 2006, Scott just, I mean, he, the medicine went again. He just was not well. And it was just worse. It was even worse. Bless his heart. And, you know, I I told him, I said, you know, I, I I respect you. And so I don't want to put all of your stuff out there about how you acted or whatever, whatever, but just know that he was just not well. He was not well. And, you know, he was saying things out of his head, like, well, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go to California. And I know it's not him, but sure. finally, finally, I'd had enough. I'd had enough. I'm like, okay, I'm working full time in a job that is so hard. And my yeah. daughter, you know, she's two, three, my mother's helping to take care of her. I can't deal with this. So I called his bluff. I said, okay, you have to leave. You're going to leave. And you know, I I can take you to the doctor, I can take you to the hospital, I can take you to the emergency room, I can take you to a homeless shelter, but you can't stay here, you know, and I don't think that he believed that I was, I was going to put him out, so, you know, and, but he said that he was going to, you know, it was, he was said it, so anyway, he just decided that, okay, and I was going to go, he said, I don't want any of that, I don't want to, you know, I don't want a doctor. I don't want to, you know, I'll give you some, some money for food. And, you know, so I went, my mother, now keep in mind when I had this confrontation, my mother and my brother were in the parking lot (laughs) of the, of the apartment complex, you know, just kind of, you know, the thing about Scott is that he was never violent. You know, I was never, and that was the hardest thing because I couldn't get involuntarily committed I couldn't do anything because he wasn't a hurt a harm to himself or anybody else you know almost makes it harder for you to make a decision because it's like you know deep down he's a good person he's never actually hurt you like physically so and I know he's sick and you know so anyway I finally I just said okay I have to call his bluff and and I was praying I was like God I just don't know what to do and I talked with somebody on the phone and I just felt like I just felt that still small voice telling me let him go and I was like okay so I called his bluff now if Scott hadn't said that he was going to leave maybe I wouldn't have done that but I called his bluff and I said okay you have to leave and so anyway I was going to go to my, the car where my mother and brother were to get some money to give him because he was just going to leave. Well, mm-hmm. 
I went right and he went left. And then he was just off into the night for a year, a whole year. I didn't know where he was. I did make sure he had his ID with him. I made sure that he had, you know, what he needed. Cause I was like, well, you know, if he's out there, I mean, somebody needs to identify him. Did you have any like mutual friends that you'd hear from or was it like complete radio silence? There were some people in his hometown that knew what we were going through. We were going to a church at that time, but a lot of it was number one, unfortunately, the church doesn't really know how to handle mental illness. I did feel basically like we were abandoned, you know, it was like, okay, I need help and nobody's helping me, you know? And then, you know, I did have some friends. And the reason why I ended up going to my mother's was because I was going to try to stay with a friend of mine. But when her husband heard that Scott was not well, he was kind of like, I don't know if I want you staying here. And I don't know if he's going to come here and you know, and I'm like, Ugh. result of stigma even, right there. Yes. It's not even mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's just not even yeah. like that. at one point, you know, I, I really tried to, to get him to go to the hospital. I really did. You know, this was before we went to my mother's. I actually called the police and I said, okay, I've got to get some things and, you know, I'm going to take a breather. I'm going to go to my sister's house and well, I just need you to come in and just kind of be there. Just you know, I want you to observe him and see, you know, so they came in and they said, sir, how you doing? And he's like, I'm good. And he's like, you know, he, they asked him questions and he's like, well, you feel like hurting yourself? And he's like, no, Do you feel like hurting anybody else? And he's like, no. And he's like, all right. So I got my stuff and I went downstairs and the policemen were like, oh, we're so sorry. They were so sweet. It, 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 they were like, you know, we, we can tell that, you know, he needs help, but there's nothing that we can do. And mm. and you all seem like you have a good relationship. I mean, even then. And I said, yeah, but I just can't, you know, I've got a small child in the home. I can't have that instability. Yeah. So so yeah so anyway we went to north carolina he left for a year but that year i just lived my life what can i do i i I did believe that he was going to come back now at first at first i'm going to be honest have to be real you know he'd left and i prayed because a lot of this has to do with my personal relationship with the lord and you know just how i pray and how i seek him because i really believe that he guides and directs my life. And so I, um, I was just praying to the Lord and I said, you know, I could get out now <laughs> and now you know, a good time. okay. Cause you know, Jasmine's only three, you know, he's gone. I mean, you know, he has to be gone for a year in North Carolina before you can do anything. But I was oh, like, really? you know, yeah. I was like, if he doesn't come back, you know, I could, maybe I could just get out of this. And I felt like the Lord was just telling me, you need to pray for him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh. <laughs> well, I don't want to pray for him, <laughs> you know? And then I'm going to tell you something that at that time, it gave me chill bumps. He said, you need to pray for him because there are lives attached to him. There are people that need to hear that he's going to touch that if you don't pray for him, nobody's going to pray for him. And I was like, oh but God, I don't have the strength. I don't have the energy. I'm tired, you know, cause I, I was worn out by this time. And he's like, well, if you can't pray, then you get somebody else to pray for you and tell them and get them to pray for him. So, <laughs> and again, this is how God is working. I was working at this school. I shared a room with the choir teacher 
told her a little bit about what was going on. She said, you know, you need to talk to my pastor. I was like, really? So she put me in touch with her, her pastor and his wife. So I spoke with the pastor's wife and she just latched on and she said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray because this woman was like a prayer warrior, you know, and she's like, I'm going to pray and we're going to pray for your husband and we're going to just pray him on back, you know, and then I got involved in a church and informed people, kind of let people know what was going on, you know, not everybody, but just know what I was believing for. And so then, so that was that, that was one cool thing that God did. But then as part of, of my teaching, I had to get, you know, that certificate of licensure or whatever. So I had to go back to school in the summer to take these classes to add to my license so that it could be cleared in however many years it had to be cleared. So I had to take this class called education of the psychology of education. And the the person, the, the gentleman teaching it, the professor, he has PhD in clinical psychology and he was just talking and he was great. I mean, everybody loved him in the class. And, and he's like, you know, I operate a counseling center out of my church. So, you know, he gave the address and he's like, the invitation is open. Come see me. You know, it's a ministry that we operate out of our church. Come see me. And so wow. I said, hmm. So I took him up on it. I called him up and I said, Hey, are you still, are you serious about that? And he's like, come on. So I went the, and it was free. And I sat there and I talked for three hours straight. (laughs) I probably didn't get it all out in three hours. (laughs) I didn't get it all out, you know, and he was just a wonderful person. He was so patient. He just sat there and he listened and, you know, I could tell that, you know, I wasn't boring him, but I mean, he was listening and then he's like, come see me again, (laughs) you know? So I'm like, okay. Yeah. So we got to talking and I love my husband. He's a great person. And I would just talk about him and, and he says, you love him don't you? And I was like, I do. <laughs> I was like, I feel like I'm, you know, I don't know what to do. Cause I just felt so bad that, oh, you know, why are we going through this? Why would he take his medicine? Why, but he's like, you love him. And it's a good thing. And so, you know, he was for the relationship, you know, he was all for the relationship and he was just like, we need to find out where he is. And I was like, well, I really don't want to try to find out where he is. I hadn't even told his family that he was gone. Wow. So, cause he didn't want to have anything to do with them. So I didn't want to have anything to do with them either, especially because of the things that he remembered. And I'm like, mm, if it's true, I don't want anything to do with them. Doctor, I won't say his name, but anyway, he was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And he walked me through the process of slowly just doing everything that I needed to do. First, he said, well, maybe you should try to report him missing. I was like, well, okay. I mean, I don't know where he is. So went to the police station, told them, you know, my husband has bipolar disorder. He was off his medication. He left in October and I haven't heard from him since. And I don't know where he is. And I, I wanted to see if I could file a missing person report. And they said, well, did he leave on his own? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, if he just left, he's a grown man. He can, he can just leave. You know, he's yeah. not, miss- he's not missing. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't missing. So I was like, well, that door's closed. So then 
the, the counselor, you know, he said, well, the next step would probably be to at least inform someone in his family to let them know, because who knows, maybe he went home and yeah, maybe he's not saying anything, you know, you need to find out at least if he's been there. And I was like, okay. So I reached out and he said, well, pick the one family member, you know, that's the, the safest, you know, who you feel the mm-hmm. most comfortable with. So I did. And, you know, there was a reunion and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it turned out that that family member came into the picture just at the right time because it just so happened that about a month after I reconnected with them, I get a phone call. <laughs> and it's the, I got a message. It was a message. And it was from the family member saying, we found him, you know, he called and he's at a state mental hospital in Raleigh and this is the number and you can call. And so they left that message. And so I called, I called the state hospital and I said, well, I'm his wife. And that's where he was. He was in the state mental hospital and he was on a journey. He had quite the journey while he was out there. I was going to say, was he there the whole time? No, but that's a whole other story. I mean, we might have to do this in two parts because yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. So while I was going to see the counselor, teaching at this job, living my life, raising my daughter, doing all this stuff, you know, trying not to dwell on where he was and all of that kind of stuff. He was essentially homeless. Um and again, this is part of the whole thing with mental illness, the, the stigmatization, you know, because a lot of times they do end up just on the street because the families don't have any, can't do anything with them. The system yeah. won't take them. I mean, what can you do, you know? So they fall through the cracks of the system. So of course his behavior is erratic and, you know, he's out there on the street. So, I mean, the first thing that he did was he went into somebody's house and laid on their couch and went to sleep. And that person, of course, was freaked out and called the police. And so he got arrested. You know, it was put in jail and he'd never been arrested. He'd never been, ever, you know, and I didn't even know this until, okay, I'm finding this out after the fact. So he got put in jail and then he was there for however long and then they let him out. Well, they let him out in the middle of winter. And Mm -hmm. so he has enough presence of mind to say to himself, well, I'm cold and I'm hungry and I need something to eat. So there was a CVS pharmacy and he went into the CVS pharmacy. He broke into it like he took one of those um, those horses, you know, that the construction people use those things. He took that and he <laughs> rammed in the like door, right open the door and he went and in there and he got some some checks or maybe some trail mix and some chocolate milk because <laughs> he was hungry so he got arrested so here's what happened he got a public defender the public defender looked at him and said you know there's something more going on here yeah, you don't seem like a hurting criminal <laughs> yeah because if you're going to break into a C- cvs pharmacy and all you're going to get is some trail mix and chocolate milk no. right <laughs> <laughs> So he was just like, okay. <laughs> he was like, he, so he, and I'm finding all of this out later because after I reconnected with Scott, when he was in the mental hospital, I found all of this out that he had been arrested and that he had this public defender, got in touch with the public defender and he's telling me the story. So he's like, I'm just so glad he had a family because when I met him, he was just in bad shape. And so I filed a motion for him to go to the state mental hospital for an evaluation before he went to trial because, you know, he was charged with like larceny or something for for yeah. you know trail mix and chocolate for mix. <laughs> yeah so 
you know, but he was like, I knew that there was something more going on. He's like, I'm just so, and this lawyer, he was just so sweet. He's like, I'm just so glad he's got a family. It just, you just don't know, you know, because I, you know, there's something about my husband that even at his worst, it's like people just want to help him because they can tell that, you know, there's just something wrong. You're like, he's just sick. You know what I mean? And so yeah, this is kind of amazing because I don't think that's always the case. Yeah, bless his heart. And so he filed the motion. And of course, it's got to run through the system and blah, blah, blah. And so he ended up at this hospital in Raleigh, which is our state capital, the state mental hospital. And I called him up. And next thing I know, I'm talking to Scott on the phone. And at that point, he had been there three weeks. So he'd been there long enough to get some medicine in him. And he's kind of starting to get his wits sort of an about him. So I went to see him and and the people at the the people at the hospital were like, well, we're just so glad you're real because he kept talking about <laughs> this child and we didn't know if you were real. <laughs> so oh man. It, it, he perked up. I mean, he he really started, you know, when I came into the picture, he started to perk up and, you know, they decided that, okay, you know, after a couple more weeks, they decided that he was competent to, you know, stand trial for his crime. And the the lawyer, the, the public defender, he got it bumped down to a misdemeanor. So he wouldn't have a felony on his record. And he just defended him. And he said, this man was ill. And he's got a family and we didn't know that he had this history. And so interesting is that that state mental hospital didn't know him from Jack. Okay. All Mm -hmm. they see is this guy, you know, they didn't know anything. And he was still diagnosed with bipolar one. I have the paperwork, you know, of the evaluation that they gave him. They said it was possible that there could be some schizoaffective, you know, we'll leave the door open, but he responded well to treatment. And this document, it describes the condition he was in when they, when he got there. And then you can kind of see the change and it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, but it's, it's encouraging too, because he turned around. I met with my counselor and I was like, well, guess what? You know, he's, we found him. And then I'm thinking, okay, is he going to come home or what, what, what is he going to do? You know? And I felt like the counselor was like, well, I think he needs to come home. I think that's going to be good for him. You know, where is he going to go? And I think it would be better for him to be with his family. Yeah. So I said, okay. So he came home. Thank you for listening to the first part of my interview with Kimberly. There's never a great way to totally cut off in the middle of a conversation, so hopefully that didn't feel horribly unnatural. But look forward to the next parts of this in the next couple weeks. Thanks again, Kimberly, for talking with me. And I hope you all are doing well and that you're getting the help you need in your relationships. You can always email me at mentalhealthmarriage at gmail.com and support the show on Patreon. There should be links with on whatever platform you're listening to. And thank you so much.